imagine for a minute that you are on your deathbed and you only have minutes to live and your family is gathered around you, what is it that you want to say to them? You've got just a few minutes. I think I would say to them, as I have said before, the most important thing in all of life is to know the Lord and to follow him. At, this, at such a point, if you can imagine it, there's no time for teaching, correcting, or any such thing. You've just got three minutes left. What are you going to say? Uh, if there's a passage in the scripture that we would say was Jesus' last will and testament, to me, it would be John chapter 17, his marvelous prayer there. Because he, he talks about what he has done, what he's going to do, but he talks about us, those who, those who would believe on the, the preaching of the apostles, not just in that generation, but so many years later, and that includes us. Second Timothy is Paul's last will and testament. So if you turn there, it's his farewell address to Timothy his beloved son, as he calls him in the second verse as as, uh, this book begins. And Paul never married. He didn't have children, as we have. But he had many sons in the faith, but none so unique and so close to him as Timothy was. Timothy has no equal. Uh, among all those whom uh, whom Paul uh, preached the gospel to. And so we could follow through the, it's divided into four chapters, and we could follow through them with these four points. Chapter 1, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words. Hang on to the word of God and to the gospel, to the teachings of the faith. 113. Chapter 2, verse 15. Handle the word accurately. Chapter 3, verse 14. Continue in the word. And chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. And if you look ahead to the very next verse, you could say even when it seems to have gone out of style. Preach the word. In the first chapter, Paul reminds Timothy of his godly heritage. He's seeking to encourage him with the almost certain prospect that he's going to die by beheading, he'll be executed, and that he will not see Timothy again. He hopes that he will, and in the last chapter in some of his comments, he says, come to me as soon as you can. 
I don't know if Timothy ever made that. But, so he says this to Timothy. He wants to encourage him because it's going to be a shock for Timothy when his beloved father in the faith is put to death so violently. It's going to be a shock. It's going to hurt him. And in in light of that possibility and probability, he says in verse 8, don't be ashamed of our Lord or me. Now, interesting, he puts himself and the Lord Jesus in the same category. Uh, that has a, has a logical necessity. Just as uh, even that passage I read in Luke this morning, uh, in chapter 23, Jesus is is branded a criminal by the the leaders of Israel who demand a death penalty and they finally get it. And so Jesus is labeled a criminal and he is crucified between two thieves. So we know that, that so well. And now Paul has been accused of being a criminal and he even makes reference to that in that very term. He's called a criminal. And he stands liable to execution in Rome. In verse 15, because he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. In verse 15 is an example of some who were ashamed. And this is, uh, or not, is it verse 15? Uh, Yes. He says, You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me. Now remember in his first imprisonment, and this is recorded in in the ending chapters of Acts, he says, At my first defense, no one stood by me. May God not hold it against them. Here, uh, Things are even worse. And all those believers in Asia who heard the gospel from Paul, who benefited so much from his ministry, are pretending they don't know him. They're afraid for themselves. Don't be ashamed. Then there's one example of somebody who was not ashamed. Verse 16. His name is Onesiphorus. And he says that when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. That's verse 17. The Lord granted to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. So here was, here was a man who, regardless of the risk to himself of associating with with the, the number one person known uh, to the Romans of this Christian religion, whom they are now against, who is now, this religion has been declared illegal in Rome, and Paul is the representative of that, but he does not hesitate for fear of his own safety to identify with him. That was, that was special to Paul. Uh, so you may find 
times in life where you have an opportunity to uh, extend some love or kindness to someone else whom everyone else has shunned. Don't pass it up. We were at uh, the Wilbur Ellis Christmas party last night, and There's a lot of interesting characters at this company. <clears throat> and one of those is a, is a, he's a driver over at the Furt plant, but I don't know. <laughs> he's not a very good driver. I mean, when I tried to take him along, he was grinding every gear, and, and that's pretty much gone on. He's just so nervous. So he was there at the party, but he sat 50 feet away from where everybody was gathering. And I went over and talked with him, but he's just not, not good in any social situation. He's a, and the fellow's older than I am, but uh, there, there are unusual people who sometimes need kindness. Don't pass it up. <clears throat> Don't be afraid to associate with them. But especially so, a brother in Christ who stands alone. A sister in Christ who's alone. Stand with them. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, Be strong, Timothy, be strong. Suffer hardship like a soldier. Live honorably like an athlete who competes according to the rules. And wait patiently like the farmer waiting for the harvest. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, Remember Jesus Christ. We've, we've gone through chapter 2. Mike, Michael was uh, bringing out some things in the last part of the chapter, but I want to go back to that trustworthy statement passage in chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. <clears throat> and this, and, and you notice how it's, I think in probably all of your Bible texts, it's, it's set out differently, indicating that it's a, it's a piece of poetry. And uh, so it follows a uh, typical Hebrew poetic parallelism formed, and so it was written... For the, for the purpose of being easily memorized. And, and it was probably also an early Christian hymn. So it'd be great if somebody could take that, and even if you need to you know, use a little different words, but to put it to music in a song. That'd, that'd be great. But that's, that's probably what this, what this was. And so I want to look at that a little more deeply this morning than we did as we passed through it the first time. So, in this uh, poem, there are four if clauses, and each one is followed by some kind of balancing conclusion. There are two positive and two negative. So, as we begin with the positives first, two positives. He says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. 
And the reference here to dying with, with Christ is in, the, is in the, the, the past tense that it's an accomplished fact. We died with him. We will also live with him. That's a present tense continuous. And it's not in the sense of someday in the future after the resurrection we will live with him. But if we died with him and if we reckon that is so in our life, if we own that, then we are living with him. Where have we heard talk like that before? Well, let's, let's turn to Romans 6. Certainly a passage we think of in regard to that. Romans chapter 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now notice he's using the, these we statements. This is the, the royal we, the, the collective plural we. Okay, If we say then, if we continue in sin may great, that grace may increase, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Verse 5 says, If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Sometimes it is, is I've often heard it said, and this is uh, said incorrectly, but I've heard believers say, I need to die to sin. And scripture doesn't put it that way. It says, you have already died to sin if you're saved. You were crucified with Christ, buried and raised again to new life in Christ. You have died to sin. So what we need to do is to reckon that so. It uses words like consider it as as an accomplished fact. Reckon it to be so or count yourselves to have died. Not that you are to be in a process of dying. So if you're saved, you already died to sin. We just need to reckon it so in each day of our life and in the crises of life. What are the crises of life? Well, what I, the way I'm using that word is when we come to a, a, a point in our experience on a given day where where the temptations to our flesh to do something or to have an attitude about something that we know is wrong. That's when we say, no, I died to sin. I can't do that. I can't go there. He says, if we endure is back to 1st Timothy 2nd Timothy excuse me if we endure we will also reign with him now there are some, uh, some two or three troubling passages of scripture that have troubled some Christians 
where it's, it seems to, to be talking like, a, at least it sounds like it's saying that, that if, if we endure or are faithful, we will be saved in the end. And then the, 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 the contrary to that is, well, then if we don't endure, does it mean we're lost again? And you know, people struggle with that. But it's not uh, using it in, the, in that sense, but I'm thinking particularly of the passage in Corinthians, for example, 1 Corinthians 15. But if we endure with him, that's a present tense, if we are enduring, we will also reign with him. Now, when we are experiencing a, a trial, a tribulation, a difficulty, something that is hard or painful in life, and we are trying to get through that, uh, we have to have the hope, the confidence that it's worth it. Now, James chapter 1, we're familiar with these words, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into to, to various trials. And we acknowledge it's hard to do that at the time. Turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. This great chapter begins this way. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And notice what it says about him then. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For considered him, consider him, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, as the Lord Jesus looked at the cross, looked at what was to come to him, you remember the scene in the garden. He said to the disciples, I, "My soul is grieved to the point of death." And he went away to pray, and it says he, he broke out into a sweat. Sweat was coming off him in big drops, like 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 drops of blood. Uh, he was that disturbed by what he was about to do. And it says here. Hebrews, for the joy set before him. He went down into that because on the other side was you. On the other side was you. In order to save you, he had to go down there. Though despising the she, he did it. He endured it. So we need to have to, to have the faith that that what we're 
experiencing as we endure things that it's worth it, that, are, that there is, there's, a, there's a reward on, on the other side. And that's, that keeps us focused and going. So there, there are two positives there. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The negatives are the ones that, that, that are troubling, perhaps. And if you're familiar with, with uh, Hebrew poetic form, oftentimes to, to emphasize uh, a positive point, they will give the, 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 the opposite of that as well, the negative of this. This, not this. You know, that type of thing. And, and so we can see that happening here. But he says, if we deny him, that means to disown or reject. And again, this is in the, in the, in the tense. It's a, it's a past tense fact. If we denied, rejected Christ and his gospel, he will not, he will deny us at the judgment. Uh, in the passage in Matthew, we're at the end of the, the tribulation period when he is judging all those who are alive on the earth. He separates the sheep from the goats and, and to those whom he sends away he says, depart from me because I never knew you. There's a denial. But do, does a believer ever deny the Lord? Does that ever happen? We, we have two Famous examples from among the apostles of one, ones who denied the Lord. And one was a believer and one was not. And of course, we're talking about Peter and we're talking about Judas Iscariot. But Peter repented and was restored. Look for a moment to... 1 John chapter 1. In verse 5 he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, and again, here's that same manner of speaking, the, the we, uh, if we say, we have fellowship with him. So as, as a believer, I, I have fellowship with God. And yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Now, I, I know someone who might talk to occasionally, not every week, but who makes boasts of walking with the Lord and uh, being close to the Lord, but all the while living a life that says the opposite of that. Hard to, hard to understand this person. 
And it's not talking here in verse 6 with our salvation. If we, as a Christian, step away into darkness, meaning into the path of sin, we do that while we're saying, and maybe coming to the meetings on Sunday and pretending to be in good fellowship with the, with the Lord, if we, if we do that, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, he says. But in verse 7 it says, not only is, is our fellowship with God interrupted, but even our fellowship with one another. And, and you've probably experienced that. If if you're doing wrong, you want to stay away from people who are doing right. <laughs> but if you have, have friends who have, who have gone in a sinful direction, they, they tend to distance themselves, don't they? Or the fellowship among believers is, is hindered if one attempts to walk in darkness. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he says to Timothy in this little poem that he can memorize and teach as well, if we deny him, he will deny us. Sometimes it seems like this. I've seen this happen a number of times. A person, a Christian, deliberately goes in a sinful direction and they seem to have this attitude that, well, let a little time go by and people will forget. And maybe you go to a new church and nobody knows who you were before anyway. And so God will get over it, won't he? And we can just go on as business as usual, pick up where we left off, so to speak. Uh, I was talking to someone some time ago who was planning to marry an unbeliever. And I, I had talked with her and had some very gentle but frank discussions, and she made no profession of being born again. But he had decided he would marry her. Where do you go from that? The only way to, to restore fellowship with God is confession and repentance. The, the second negative is that if, if we are faithless, and that's in the present tense, so if we are behaving in a faithless manner, he remains faithful. Aren't you glad of that? That no matter what we do, God is never going to fail. Besides putting this poem to music, if someone could do that, 
Another thing you can do with it is write it on a little card, maybe something the size of a business card or, or a little sticky note, and put that on your computer screen or your monitor. And so when you're tempted to go somewhere you shouldn't, you can read that. So if you're, if, you're a, if you're a guy and you're sitting at your computer and you're tempted to go look at pornography, you can read that. Say, no, I have died with Christ. I will not go there. I will not go where Christ will not go. In verse 14... He says, remind them of these things. Remind the believers of these things. And this, this poem seems to, be, to go with the passage that follows it, probably not with that matter which preceded it, and particularly verses 14 through 19 are, are where this, this poetic statement is directed. He said, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. To wrangle means uh, to uh, to quarrel, to argue about it. And in, in these succeeding verses, there are two positives and two negatives. Uh, but in this case, he starts with a negative and then a positive and then another negative and then a positive. So the negative is don't wrangle about words. But the positive is be diligent or make every effort to seek God's approval in what you do. This uh, verse 15 was a was part of a scripture memory packet that I uh, memorized when I was a brand new Christian at about 19 years of age. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So every Christian has an obligation before God to handle God's word accurately. doesn't matter how old you are or who you are. If you're, if you're saved, you've got that obligation. You hold the scriptures before you, we have that obligation. And so we don't want to be ashamed of how we do that. So present yourself for God's approval by accurately handling his work. Then another negative. He said, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and goes on to say some things about that, and, and Michael you know, spoke about that. Um, avoid speculative things, hair-splitting things that sometimes people like to argue about. I was talking to someone once who was boasting in, in the amount of uh, thorough study and effort that he had put into uh, arguing against some uh, point of, of Christian teaching that some people have followed. 
And uh, in, in proving that that was wrong, and I, I asked him once, well, have you ever persuaded someone who held that understanding to, to your point of view? And he said, no, he hadn't. Avoid these things. He mentions a couple of examples, a couple of men, one who was mentioned in 1 Timothy uh, unfavorably. Avoid speculative things, hair-splitting things that are just to be argued over. And then the positive is found in verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. That's what we want. And then he gives two points under this that are just precious. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that great? Now, sometimes among believers, especially when there's, uh, you know, one has fallen into sin, it can, it can be hard to tell. But the Lord always knows those who are his. And then the second thing in that verse let everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That would seem like a pretty simple thing. Let everyone who names the name, if you claim to be a Christian, if you say, Jesus Christ has saved me, then that's our obligation to live in that way. Down to the bottom of the chapter, there's some conclusion statements that, that bear, again, further examination. He says in verse 24, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So, who's a bondservant? Well, if we've read much of Scripture, we recognize that expression. Paul uses it a lot. Anyone who belongs to Christ is the Lord's servant. A bond servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. So, in the words of Romans uh, 6, for example, once we were slaves to sin, but now we have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're slaves to Christ. So the Lord's bond servant... And every Christian can include themselves in that as one of those, must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, you know, want to fight, but kind to all. Oftentimes in arguments and debates, human pride really rears itself up, and we want to win. <laughs> we want to win the argument. But pride and kindness just don't seem to co don't seem to coexist with one another. Because kindness comes out of humility and humbleness of heart. So the Lord's bondservant then, this is the kind of reputation we all want to have. <clears throat> Not quarrelsome, but kind to all. Uh, able to teach or apt to teach, ready to teach. Now we're going to see at the end of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy that all scripture is profitable for teaching. 
Are we ready to do that? And patient when wronged or insulted is, is another word I've seen a translation use. That's, that's hard to do, isn't it? Patient when insulted. So we're not to be resentful towards others whom you know, maybe we've had a difficulty with. And maybe they've spoken unkindly to us. But what is, what is the goal here? What's the goal? Well, he gets to that in verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If, if we seek to, to win an argument, win a debate... What happens with gentleness? There's no, maybe not any room for that. Again, in chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is profitable for correction. But correction to children by parents, to a fellow brother or sister, must be done in gentleness in order to be received. Harshness provokes the opposite response. So with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's the goal, right? Isn't it? Shouldn't it be? Or sometimes maybe the goal really is just to win. And maybe we've all experienced something like that. And that that doesn't get us anywhere, does it? You can win an argument and lose a friend. So, that God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. That's the goal. That's how we ought to, uh, to work with one another. So, how do you develop a reputation like that? Well, it takes some constant attention and fine-tuning. This is even more difficult in, the, in, in what he's going to say next as we keep going to chapter 3, and we'll develop this at a later time. But he, he says in the last days, difficult times were coming. People are going to be like this. And, he, and there's uh, you know, four verses. Okay, so you're seeking to, to evangelize among people like that. Well, there's going to be some difficult times. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, the time will come when they, they won't endure sound doctrine. They won't even listen anymore. So while we can, 
Let's be kind, ready to teach, and patient with one another and with those we seek to win. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the gentleness of the Lord Jesus. Yes, he at times had some stern things to say to those who came uh, to him to, to trap him or to, to cause him trouble, but any inquiring sinner, any stumbling fallen man or woman, we see the Lord Jesus dealing with in gentleness. Lord, may we be gentle like the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.